0: Today's episode of the Bill Simmons Podcast on The Ringer Podcast Network brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Here's the difference between working hard and working smart. Area 51, Freddie Mercury, Pete Buttigieg. What's that documentary called? I Love You Now Die. I Love You Now Die. Just one of the many things we're covering on today's podcast with Chuck Klosterman. Because we worked hard and we worked smart. We did an outline for this one. ZipRecruiter's technology and tools bank hiring, more efficient and effective. It's the smartest way to hire four to five employers who post on ZipRecruiter to get quality candidates through the site and within one day. My listeners can try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash BS. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. Meanwhile, you may forget what happened three seasons ago on that show everyone's talking about right now, but... You'll never forget a delicious BLT made with unforgettably creamy Heinz mayonnaise. Slather it onto a mouthwatering turkey club, mix it into a luscious garlic aioli. And because of the unforgettable creaminess, hours later, you'll be telling everyone within earshot just how good it was. Try something new. Try unforgettably creamy Heinz mayonnaise and the new Heinz mashups mayo chip, mayo Q, mayo must, and cranch. Oh, one more for you. M&M's. I just, I swear to God on my kid's life, I ate half a bag of these right before I did this podcast. So yeah, this is the most authentic read you're going to have all day. Take your game day treats to the next level with the new M&M's Hazelnut Spread Chocolate Candies covered in smooth M&M's milk chocolate, delivering a mouthwatering blend of chocolate and hazelnut. In every bite-sized piece, enjoy them on their own. Use them to spruce up your favorite desserts. Or do what I just did and have half a pack to give you a little energy. Wake you up a little bit, just a tiny bit. They're delicious, by the way. Go hazelnutty. Try the new M&M's Hazelnut Spread Chocolate Candies. Today, we're also brought to you by the world's greatest website, theringer.com, where we are celebrating the year in music of 1999. You can go on Twitter, to hashtag 99music. and can go to theringer.com. You can read... Basically, a million different things we wrote about that year, which was a fascinating year in pop music, a terrible year for rock music, and a decent year for hip hop and rap. But uh, the totality of it is definitely feels like something. So we wrote about that. Also on the podcast front, I did Bachelor Party with Mallory Rubin. That uh, that's up. We did. Uh, we broke down the last episode of Bachelor of the Bachelorette and uh, and everything that happened there, including Jed. And his terrible guitar singing but getting kicked off the show. Bye, Jed. Good luck. Uh, so we did that, and Mallory is in rare form, as always. We are also have a new episode of The Rewatchables coming Friday. It is The Town. Yeah. Me, Ryan Rossillo Chris Ryan. You think you're better
1: oh, than so me? Again.
0: You think you're better than me? I'm really overprepared for this one, so that's happening. Be ready for that. Coming up. The one, the only Chuck Klosterman. First, our friends from Pro-Jab. All right, on the line, Chuck Klosterman, BS podcast Hall of Famer. He has a new book out that is called "Raised in Captivity." He's been on tour. He was at uh, Gillette last week. He played the Meadowlands. He played uh, he played Dodger Stadium. I know it was an incredible tour. I know everybody turned out. What is it like to do a book tour in 2019? The selfie, get a picture with a celebrity era.
1: Well, you know the pictures are part of it now. When it, when I was in Austin, almost every person who got a book signed also wanted a picture. I guess it's just so easy. That slows it down a little bit, I guess. I don't mind. I don't know what people are doing with all these pictures, but they can have them. The uh the events themselves though, I I think they're more the same than different. It's just uh it's just that the economics of selling books has changed so much that it's just a weird idea now. I mean, you know, it's like like you're going on when I go on tour it's a strange situation because so I'm selling books obviously ostensibly that's the idea but the people who come to a reading well they're probably the people who would definitely buy a book anyway right
0: you would think
1: hey. you I mean that if, if someone's willing to come to a bookstore and sit there and listen to a guy talk and read or whatever that person was probably going to buy the book anyways so I'm not exactly sure how it makes like economic sense to do it i mean i'm only the tours are smaller. I'm only doing nine cities this year. I yeah. guess in the past, like when I did Killing Yourself to Live, I think I had a six-week tour. I don't mm. think anyone does that anymore.
0: Right. Yeah. I think it's funny. I, I did a book tour in 05 and I did a book tour in 09. And but you
1: don't read, right? That's your thing. You do not read ever. I,
0: I didn't really know what I was doing and I didn't do that many. And we had enough people there that I probably should have read, but it was more like I just wanted to meet people and sign books. And at that point, especially in 05, you had no connection to people other than they read my column, right? I do not even have a podcast <clears> at that point. And 09, I had Twitter for maybe six months at that point. I'd probably had, I don't know, 30, 35,000 followers or something. Um, but I wasn't in, in somebody's life the way that, Really, anybody can be now. Like nowadays, people are able to be connected to you, even if it's in that weird digital way where they're following me on Twitter and uh, or on Instagram and they're listening to this podcast. However, else, I'm kind of in their life more. Back then, in like '05, it was like it's my calm and that's it. If you wanted to even see what I looked like or hear my voice, this was the one chance. So I do think the dynamic. Well, I, mean, I think I social media has shifted I don't it. do
1: that stuff though. I'm not really on. Twitter for that, like, it's. I only kind of promote things, so I'm more like the band Tool. If you <laughs> want to, if you want to stop, if you want to see me, you gotta go to this thing. Or well, but they can hear podcast. you in this
0: podcast, though. They have a feel for what you're like on different podcasts it, and things like that, so that's different.
1: And you know what, Bill? I, this is something, I don't know if I ever told you this before. Maybe we've talked about this, but having gone on podcasts podcast for all these years, I'm sure has helped me sell more books. I'm sure it has helped my career, you know? And yet I do wonder, ultimately, was it a mistake? Would <laughs> I have been better off? I, I'm serious. Like, I did all that TV stuff and all these podcast things. I was in that movie. and all. So now everyone knows how I sound, right? Yeah. Well, when you write a book, and if the idea, like, I've been, if you're lucky, you know, and people feel like your writing has voice, but they don't know what your voice is, The voice they create is the best version of their own voice. So the voice they hear in their head is the best version of themselves. But like once you know what a person talks like, that's the voice you hear. And frankly, there's a lot of people who hate my voice. I I know that's the case. (laughs) And I'm sure that has been detrimental to me over time. It's like, can you imagine reading a Malcolm Gladwell book now and not hearing Malcolm Gladwell's voice? It can't be done. And, and so I, I do wonder sometimes if I had never done anything in public except book readings, if it would be more, if, if it would have been to the benefit of the actual books, even though I would have sold way less. of. Them.
0: Or if you just did nothing, you were just this enigma that just produced this book Unabomber style every year and nobody even knew where you lived or what you looked like.
1: Well, that's kind of like what William Volman does. I mean, he's just, he's like the most prolific genius writer out there who's just constantly putting books out. I have no idea what he sounds like. I have a vague idea of what he looks like. If you want to have fun, go read William Bowman's Wikipedia entry. That's (laughs) as good as most books, you know, but he's done exactly that. Like he doesn't, he doesn't go anywhere and do anything. Well, he constantly goes somewhere, but he never appears in public. Uh, And you know, I I don't know. (laughs) of
0: That's a really interesting point about, hearing somebody's voice and then not being able to shake that as the voice when you read them, you know, and whatever. Cause I remember the first time that happened to me was when the sports writers started going on TV, you know, and, and all of a sudden mm-hmm. Mike Lupica and Bob Ryan and people, Will McDonough people that I'd grown up reading. And I, I knew what Bob Ryan's voice sounded like. Cause he used to go on local radio in Boston, but for the most part, didn't really know the voices. And then you would hear the voices and, you know, Will McDonough started going on the NBC NFL show in the late 80s, and he just had this old school, like he's like a character from The Departed or The Town, had one of those voices. And then when you read his pieces, you would kind of hear that voice. So I get it. Yeah, I'm sure nobody really likes their own voice and nobody's really happy with anyone else's voice with about five exceptions. So I'm sure it does. It It is probably a little bit of a detriment. I was thinking more... The photos, selfies thing just has to slow the process down because I remember when I, when I did my last tour, um, you know, there's sometimes there's a lot of people there and you're just trying to, you don't want people to wait in line if they have to do whatever. And the selfies pictures thing would slow it down even more because half the time it's like, oh, oh shoot, hold on. Oh my, I didn't realize my flash wasn't on and there's all the, and you're just in that constant situation where somebody's phone isn't working.
1: Um yeah, well that, that it does it slows things down a little bit. I guess, you know, at the same time, it's like where else do I have to be? I have right. the time. You're there, like, you're there all I, night. Like I said, like the thing in Texas, like in Austin, the one that I did with Shay, okay. A lot of people came, I think a yeah. lot, because Shay is really good at getting people out. Okay. Yeah. And at the bookstore in Austin, they actually set it up. They have a person from the bookstore who stands in front of the table and you hand them your phone and then you walk behind the table and that person
2: takes a picture. Oh, that's picture. great. So,
1: well, here's the here's the thing though. By doing that, every person does it. Oh. Uh, like they almost think it's part of the process. I, I mean, I I every book I signed, I feel like I took a picture with someone. Um, so, so you it, feel like you're like thing, you're like Barack Obama.
0: Of, well, you're like, Barack, well, Obama like the, Barack Obama at the Yeah, like the White House correspondence dinner where you're just People are in a line, in a receiving line, and you're taking the same picture with them over and over again.
1: The difference being when someone meets the president, they probably think, I want to get photographed with this person. <laughs> I think a lot of people who come to my reading, it never fucking occurs to them oh, that I get a picture with him. But yeah. when someone says, like, so if you try to make the system more efficient, it actually makes things slower. Yet yeah, that's why, like, those little post-it notes sometimes at book readings they give everyone a post-it note with the idea that they'll put their name on it and then you can sign their name in the book and you'll have the spelling. But then every single person does it instead of just having the book signed. They think, oh, it's supposed to be personalized to me specifically. So then they all do it. And that actually makes the whole process go much longer. But I can't really complain about the time it takes. I mean, it's amazing to me that people come and listen to me just talk for 90 minutes. That's, bizarre to me i'm very right. flattered it's very weird but they do it so i figure if they do that plus they're spending whatever it costs for the book 26 bucks or whatever yeah like i can i can sit there and put the time in
0: you're there for the night that's it they gave
1: you they gave, yeah, your, they yeah, gave you sure. your
0: their time you're gonna give them yeah i i totally get it i i loved i mean it was definitely it's a lot of people and you have to be on so at some of the stops but I loved the the book tour. I remember one of the stops I think new york i had um in o nine I had two of my buddies from college, Jack and House. they just came and sat at the table and just made fun of me and did the whole thing. It was just it was it's just good to put faces to who's reading you and 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 stuff like that so um that's one reason I would write another book. The reason I would never read another book is I just don't <laughs> I just couldn't do it anymore. <laughs>
1: I think the ship sailed for me. Uh, Yeah, I don't know if the enjoyment of the book signing is worth writing a book for. But you know, (laughs) it surprises me that you have no desire to write another book. I would, you know, it it would seem like that so many people would be like, "I wish I could do that. I wish I had the ability to do it, or to get into a position where if I did it, people would read it." What is your reason for having no desire to do it? It's not you can a, literally write about any subject you want. Well, I know you've done it, but you know, it's not me a, only two things. One, huh?
0: it's not a no desire thing. It's I know what it takes. I, I honestly, it's, it's like the same reason when I was trying to talk my wife into having a third kid, which didn't go well, by the way, it was a, a disaster. Um, and she was just like, I've done this twice. I don't want to do it again. I know all, all the steps and I don't want to put my body through it. And not to compare writing a book to passing a child out of your body, because that's still the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my life. But I feel the same. Like when she said that, I kind of felt the same way about a book. Like I know I could probably do it, but I also know like how miserable I would be for those 10 to 11 months trying to get it done and being trapped in it. And trying to come up with some angle, like the logical book for me to write would be to to do to write about basketball, everything that's happened since I wrote the last book because the league has changed so much the last ten years and there would be so many fun different ways to go. and I just once I once I would start something like that I, I that would be all I would be thinking about and doing and I the what we're doing here I, I'm not able to do that. I can't just shut down and work on that for a year, you know so that's the reason. I wouldn't want to be, make it be one of the seven things I was doing. So,
1: yeah, I guess you have you have other kind of, you know, obligations too hard. There are many more obligations. Yeah, I would
0: have know. to like when I wrote my last book, which was way too long, um I I disappeared for 10 weeks in the summer of 08. Like I I was gone. I didn't do anything. I don't I think I probably even did like three or four podcasts and that was it. But um you know, I really respect the people that can Go through that grind and know it's going to happen, and then do it again. I'm, I'm always like impressed by because
1: it, it, it is. I mean, I, I guess this is one of the many ways we are different. Like I, the part of putting the book out to me, that is by far the hardest part. If I could just work on a book for the rest of my life and just be paid for working on it, and yeah. it would never come out, that would be awesome. <laughs> like, I, I what love does that, that even mean? It. Just the well, whole I mean, process like could, of it. Well, I just, I don't know. I mean, if I could, if I, I've i said this before, but it's true. Like if, if I could have just made the amount of money that I would make for putting books out, but all I would do is just keep rewriting and reworking Fargo Rock City, I, I would be a great life. If I could just kind of constantly rewrite it and make it better and add new things and I would just write and write and write and write and there would be no, uh, there would be, it would never leave my life it would just be there but it wouldn't it wouldn't go to any other life it would just be mine that would be great
0: i had when the last contract i signed with espn which was for i think like four or five years there was a book component to it and you know you know a book deal you just turn in the idea and they give you like a third or Mm -hmm. whatever it is and i just didn't have an idea like and i just never did it and and (laughs) then the then my contract was over i just couldn't summon the 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 I, I actually did have one idea that was not a basketball idea that I still think would have worked and was fired up about it and just you know at that point Grantland was going and 30 for 30 and I was on TV and I was I was just doing too many things there's no way I could have done it and so I kind of look back at that and be like oh man there was this one moment when I had this idea that I think would have worked. So can
1: maybe, I add, can I ask you a, a yeah. ESPN related
0: question? You you love yeah you love when this turns on me. This is your always well, your. No, this usually no, happens this is, at is, the end is of the
1: podcast. This yeah, is, this is purely speculative. Okay? Yeah. Do you think Dan Levitard wants to be fired? Because the thing is, he would be fine if that was the case. He can't quit though, because for like if they because of his contract, I'm sure locked him in that he couldn't work anywhere for like two years or whatever. Do you think actually? He wants to get fired.
0: I think the current answer is absolutely not. I think when he did what he did, I still have not talked to him about this. So this is all speculation. I think the initial act was somebody that was like, I don't care what happens. And if, if this goes down a certain road, that's fine, but I'm going to do this and I don't like this policy and I'm going to, I'm, I'm laying it all out there. And I think what happened is, you know, and as somebody who's been, who's been in a pretty similar position, definitely different circumstances, but you realize that when you go down that, that road, but you're also, you have all these other people in their lives that are professionally attached to what you're doing and you see how they're reacting to it. You realize there be, there comes this moment where you're like, am I, am I really ready to take this the whole way or not? And I don't think he was.
1: Hmm, Because my my thinking was particularly with like, with fox sports one all that stuff now it would he could move his whole show it would seem like like and and the audience for his show is big but it's not like going somewhere else would suddenly make him just this forgotten thing i think the kind of people who are into that show would follow it so it almost seemed like he had this leverage where he was hoping he'd be fired uh but i i i don't know i mean i don't know him emailed with him four times or whatever. I don't know him. I think really it would have been all,
0: so I think it would have been serious. I don't think it would have been fox. But I you know, part of the problem with that is the other people that are in his orbit all like everybody just signed new deals. So it's like, yeah, he could go, but mm. they still have everybody else under contract. It's not not that different from what happened when, you know, when I left Grantland and they mm-hmm. still had a lot mm-hmm. of different people that were under contract. So it's not like we all left at the same time. So I think I my guess is he was really fired up about it. He was had a certain level of conviction for a direction that he thought he wanted it to go. And then when ESPN called his bluff, at that point it becomes a game of chicken, and you have to decide whether you want to collide into the other car or not. You know? And I and he obviously didn't want to. So I I uh I thought it was pretty fascinating to watch. And I talked about it a little on the podcast last week because you know, I think if you're ESPN, it's the right move to stay away from all of that stuff. I'm, I'm talking to somebody who on Tuesday did a podcast where me and Jacko talked about Trump and the Democrats for 25 minutes. Like, I can do that because I'm, I'm in charge of my own stuff here. But um, I think if you're ESPN, all their ratings for all the talking head shows are up in general, they've been able to shed that whole perception that they're too liberal and, you know, they they want to appeal to all 50 states and they just want to show sports. So I think as a business move, it does make sense for them. What what do they have to gain from Lebetard on his sports show on ESPN Radio, just opining about the faults of the president for 10 minutes? It doesn't add anything to what their mission is.
1: Well, I, I, it's not even, I think, so much the addition or the subtraction. I think that there is like, this dissonance between a lot of, of the personalities there and the people who consume ESPN because, okay, ESPN is this weird institution where it's entertainment and it's journalism at the same time. You know, that's sort of the inherent problem with ESPN in general is that they are a journalistic outlet and an entertainment outlet. And I think the people who work there see it more as a journalistic enterprise and the people who consume it generally see it as an entertainment enterprise. So it's like, it's not, I think people are always kind of this idea. It's like, it's what the politics that they're talking about or how they're doing it. But to a degree, it's like when people watch the weather channel, they want to know about weather. Mm. Like, okay, there's a, I suppose there are political elements. You you talk about climate change or whatever, you know, that could be on the weather channel. For the most part, people are interested in the weather. And I think that when people watch ESPN, of course, there are exceptions, but I think for the most part, they see it as like, uh, this is how I get access to sports. These other things I'm accessing in all these other ways, I don't, you know, I think that is the thing. Like, there's just a, a little confusion about how the network is perceived by people
0: by the people who work there. Yeah. I, I, I think the fundamental issue is this. When I was there, the times that I got that I really battled them were because I had been told the rules were supposed to go a certain way. And then I felt like they shifted what they told me, you know? And I think even, even criticizing Goodell and saying he lied about the Ray Rice thing and all that stuff, which was a big part of, why I got in the hot water when I was there. Um, I felt like I was totally justified to do that because they told me, if you stick by the facts and it's a sports-related thing and you're able to back up what you're saying, then anyone's fair game. So I'm like, great. So, you know, when I went after Goodell those last years, I was like, the guy did lie. Like, dude, we, he completely contradicted himself. We have all these testimonies of people that were in the room at the Ray Rice thing. Like he lied. He changed, he suspended him for one thing and then he changed his story. I should be allowed to talk about this.
1: Uh, and you know, I my my take on this remains yeah. and I've told you this before. I yeah. think it is the confusion over when you said, I challenged someone to call me on Yeah. This. Now you say that you were talking about the NFL, but listening to it, it almost seemed like you were saying it to espn and if you run espn there was already the situation where i know a lot of the people in bristol did not love the idea of grantland they sort of felt that it was given like a a too much leverage and too much freedom and was kind of able to do the things they wanted to do and weren't allowed to yeah so i think if they hear this and they perceive you as challenging the entire organization to sanction you like, I guess I would
0: have sanctioned you too if I was Skipper. Yeah, and I've said this last week, my big mistake was not listening to it before it went up, because that was an easy edit, and I feel like I could have kept all that other stuff and if they had, you know, I had always been told it was two weeks for the challenge ESPN and the one week for, um, for just calling Goodell a liar and being so adamant, and saying fucking when I said he was a fucking liar. I think that was what pushed it over the edge. I'd always heard it was the combo of that, but um, but when I came back, you know, I didn't back off from it. And I remember I had Don Viannata on a podcast where we just painstakingly went over the, the whole Goodell stuff. Cause they were like, if you're going to hang this guy, hang him with facts. And we spent, we did like a 70 minute podcast, just like painstakingly doing all the facts to just, to just, be like, all right, if you want me to hang him with facts, I'm happy to do that. But the, the key is it was a sports topic. And I think it was a relevant sports topic because the guy's in charge of the most popular sports league and he was acting inappropriately. And that's something you should be able to talk about on ESPN. I think the people running ESPN now would agree with that. I think where it gets, where it gets uh, a little dicey is when somebody's like, here are my thoughts on the, on the current president who I don't like. And they, they just don't want that. They've made that clear. So if somebody's going to say, well, I'm giving my thoughts anyway, then don't work there. You know, and that's why I don't, I don't know how I feel morally about ESPN, just saying like, we're out, we're not, we're not getting involved in the sports thing at all. But I do think it came from a place where once you open the door and allow people to kind of, you give them the window to be able to say and and do kind of whatever they want about non-sports stuff, there's, there's kind of no putting the. What is it? The rabbit back in the box. What is that? What's that phrase?
1: Oh, the horse back in the the barn horse back the, in the barn. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, like
0: once once it's out, back in the match, you can't yeah. you can't yeah. stop it. So they're just saying, like, look, we're out. We don't want this anymore. Don't do this. If you want to do this, go work somewhere else. We're we're happy to let you out of your contract. So I think that's where we are.
1: And, and, and it's a complicated deal because you know uh, you know on on the one hand, I guess my my natural inclination is always to sort of let people who are paid to be commenters sort of take the conversation wherever they want to go. But it does sort of create kind of weird things where, okay, so all these shows, it's always like one or two people, or usually two people, sometimes four people or whatever. If one individual is really being political and the other people choose not to, it's almost like it is seen as them latently taking the opposite position, like 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 they're somehow supporting what the person is criticizing because they you know, it almost if if people start getting political in any sense, it almost sort of demands that that everyone do it. Otherwise, like okay, I mean the ringer is a good example. Of this. Like you guys don't do a lot of political type coverage, but you do some, and yeah. it tends to share the same ideology. And I know the assumption is that everybody at The Ringer thinks the same way politically about everything. But why wouldn't they? Because the only slices of it they see sort of have one sort of position. The assumption is that, well, everyone else must be there. Like, everyone assumes that every employee at the Wall Street Journal is a Republican. That's just kind of what people think, because the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal is conservative. I know people who work at the Wall Street Journal. That is not the case. But... That's what the assumption is that you wouldn't work there if you didn't believe that, because for a lot of, of, you know, the audience, they think to themselves, well, I, I wouldn't be involved in media unless I could sort of project my world onto other people. And a lot of journalists don't think that way. Like particularly the older ones who were sort of told that you were supposed to try to overcome your biases at every turn, you know, and that's, Different
0: now, but it still exists. Yeah, it's also so much different than it was. You know, even five years ago, I, I think I remember I had in two thousand eight in the spring, I got Obama to come on my podcast, and I had only had a podcast at that point for like a year, and um, and then it got nixed by ESPN, which has been written about. I don't this isn't a new story, mm-hmm. but I, and I was always really confused and angry that, cause first of all, it would have been the biggest podcast of all time until that point, it wasn't like a really big medium. And I was pretty certain he was gonna win the presidency. And I was like, I have a chance to get this guy six months before he becomes the president. Like, this is amazing. And that, you know, the reason they squashed it was basically, we don't wanna be perceived as leaning one way or the other. But when you think about it in retrospect, what ESPN is doing now with all this stuff really isn't much different than the mindset they had back then, you know? And, and when they had Obama coming on to fill out the March Madness bracket every year, maybe that's not something they would do now, you know, it stopped because Trump didn't want to do it, but even that could be
2: perceived. Did they ask
1: Trump? I I was always wondering about that. I really thought like, I was like, maybe Andy Katz is like, I'm not doing it, but uh, I thought that would have been very, Entertaining to see, but oh my god, know. that would
0: have that would have been the best ten minutes of TV all year. Did Trump filling out a March Madness bracket—it would have been incredible. Can they? See, maybe they can still do that for twenty twenty. So my point is, I don't like. I look at uh, a show like Mike and Mike, which lasted forever, and it was always a show that people, you know, it did. It had its audience. People kind of appreciated it. I, I There wasn't like a rabid Mike and Mike fan base, but it did what it did. And coincidentally, he talked, he gave an interview today. We're taping this on a Wednesday where he's basically saying, I'm not doing politics at all on, on get up. And I'm, I'm fine with that. And he gave a quote, when I go to McDonald's, I go there because I want to have a hamburger. And if I walked to McDonald's and they said to me, we're not doing hamburgers today, we're doing pizza. I'd say, what are you talking about? You're McDonald's. What you do is hamburgers. If I wanted pizza, I would go to one of the places where they make better pizza than you. It's a depressing quote, but it's kind of, it's a fair quote too, because people go to ESPN for sports and if they wanted to go, if they wanted politics, they would go to one of the politics stations. So what'd you think of that?
1: Uh, like his quote? Or I think yeah, his just quote. the
0: quote, the quote, the mindset.
1: Well, I mean, I, I, I think it in a way sort of, I guess, reflects what I was saying earlier that I, I don't think that people go to ESPN for the most part for, uh, the idea that they're getting, even though there's a, like a lot of journalism done there, I think that they see that as uh, if, if I'm watching ESPN and a game is not on, this is the material that connects to the game. Like I'm just, got, I gotta, I gotta wait through this or whatever. Or, or I want to see what people are talking about. Uh, and sometimes I guess maybe, I mean, I, I don't know if, if their political coverage gets them more attention tension or if it does i mean they did they had that poll or whatever where they were like 84 percent of conservatives and 69 percent of liberals wish there was like less political content on espn or don't want politics in there so that would kind of suggest it was most people i mean yeah. if those figures can be that's, trusted um
0: that's a pretty big thing um hold on let's uh let's take a break Hey, Voodoo is a leading streaming app with a library of over 150,000 titles available to rent or buy, like the critically acclaimed smash hit Avengers Endgame. Wow. Voodoo recently launched an ad-supported on-demand service with over 10,000 titles you can watch for free, including classic movies and TV shows. Oh man, we've done rewatchables on some of these. The Departed, The Matrix, Cry to kid, we have not done rewatchables. That's coming. Jerry Maguire was one of the first rewatchables we did. Fatal Attraction may or may not be one we're doing in August, but those are all going to be free in August and a whole bunch of uh, other great ones. Voodoo is the presenting sponsor of the Rewatchables podcast where we're covering, God, we have The Town coming up. We're going to be doing Fatal Attraction. We have Chris Ryan and I are doing Collateral. Where do you stand on Collateral, collateral Kyle? Yeah, yeah, I'll listen. I'll yeah, listen. yeah. A uh, bunch of good ones in, in the works. Watch for free on Voodoo before you tune in to the new ep- episode. Voodoo is available wherever you watch TV. They make it easy to access all your favorite entertainment with the click of a button. Enjoy on your smart TV, Roku, Chromecast, iPhone, Android, online. No subscriptions, no contracts, just free entertainment. Simmons family used it in Hawaii. We rented the Curse of Llorona. Oh, really? I heard that was super scary. We had to buy it. I didn't mind buying it. Ben will watch it five times. He's a weirdo. Head to Voodoo.com slash Bill Simmons to sign up and start watching today. Catch up on well, Fatal Attraction you should be catching up on because that's coming and that's going to be an all-time podcast. But you can catch up on The Town and a whole bunch of other ones at voodoo.com slash simmons, V-U-D-U dot com slash simmons. Back to Chuck. Speaking of ESPN, wanted to talk about, so we're in this dead content time right now where, especially for a site like The Ringer and some other places where, you know, you, you have these runs September, October, November, December, that's great. April, May, June, there's just a lot going on. There's playoffs, you got drafts, you have award season, um, biggest movies coming out, all that stuff. And then you have the dead times. You have what we had last week where there's just nothing going on. And fortunately for The Ringer and for a lot of people who make content, Tarantino had a new movie coming out and it turned into a whole tarantino yeah i'm
1: surprised you i'm shocked you haven't seen that
0: well i was away and i was in in hawaii yeah i was in hawaii and and it was not playing in a movie theater that was within 90 minutes of us so that was a problem uh i'm seeing it tonight but um this week is even more dead than last week was because there's no tarantino movie we basically have hobbs and shaw and then the major league baseball trade deadline and the training camp starting i guess Maybe you could argue this week slightly better than last week, but just slightly.
1: Does Hard Knocks start to-
0: Hard Knocks is a week next away. Next week? Yeah, next week. Next week, okay. things start feeling like normal again. But my point is, so this LeBron thing happens where he's cheering his, his son out in these AAU games a little too vociferously for some people's liking. And he went in the layup line, did some dunks. And I feel like if this happens in November- I don't even know if it makes PTI. It might make the third segment for 30 seconds when they do one of those buy or sell or like those gimmicks like that. But because it happens this week, it suddenly becomes the biggest sports story for two days. Um, Are we just trained now where we just need content every day? We're like a shark swimming around eating fish and it's like, ah, there's no fish in here. I guess I'll just eat this license plate you know, where, where you're just conditioned oh, to eat every four the hours. The fact
1: that you, that you just spent three minutes talking about the periods of no content uh, and then the fact that you write a website would suggest to me that you have trained yourself that way. Yeah. I don't know if I have. I think you are. The no, shark you're describing is the shark that you are.
0: I'm talking <laughs> about the whole the whole media machine because this was like, this became the dominant story yesterday on all the ESPN shows. It was the dominant story on any sports website you went to. It was lead topics on podcasts. Um, People were
1: arguing about this. It's a a little compelling because it is something that people who don't follow sports have an opinion on. I have found like it, 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 it's a situation where it's like, you don't need any knowledge of basketball to sort of have a response To it, What was your response to it? If we're going to talk about it, let's just talk about it. What was your response?
0: Well, the reason, the real reason is because it ties into sports parents, which is a juicy topic that everybody who has either had kids or been to their niece or nephew's game or their cousin's game, we've witnessed sports parent behavior and we have opinions on it. So now you have the most famous active basketball player whose son is, um, A seemingly good prospect and he is acting like, you know, like he's the guy's big brother and really seems to be getting a genuine kick out of everything that's going on to the point that he's becoming as big of a spectacle as the actual game. So some people are like, what's he doing? That's not how parents should have to act. Mm -hmm. And then other people are like, this is great. LeBron's in a dunk line. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with LeBron dunking for a crowd just randomly because he's happy to be there. So it is one of those classic sports stories where you can pick a side, which is, I think, why it became a two-day story.
1: Do you have a side?
0: (sighs) My side is complicated because I think if anybody else acted that way they would be mocked on the internet for five days, but it's LeBron James and the rules are just different for him. So, you know, it's exciting to have the guy there. I went to, my daughter played a game last year when the game before it was LeBron's younger son was playing. So LeBron was there. And when he's in the gym, it's like, you know, it's a thing you can, Everyone's talking about it. Everybody's feeling it. It's impossible not to concentrate on the fact that LeBron James is there. He's six foot nine. Yeah. He stands out.
1: It, it, well, here's what I would say on it, I guess. Okay. I, 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 it, it might as complicated too, because it's going to seem like I'm kind of hedging, but this is kind of my response. One thing I do think is, you know, it is pretty interesting that who would have been the model or the example of an NBA dad in the nineties, Sean Kemp
2: you know the idea that
1: like nba <laughs> yes. players were literally the worst dad that they just went from city to city siring children and then having no relationship i mean even like i mean it's for me it's the hardest thing about larry bird i hate the fact that he just has no relationship with his daughter who looks just like him and worships him and he has no i mean maybe he does now but for a long time he didn't yeah okay so in that sense it's like well lebron is not like that right lebron seems like a pretty good dad i also will say that i understand and empathize with the fact that literally nothing is more exciting than watching your kids succeed at something yeah it is the best feeling i have ever had i think like my little guy is in taekwondo and when he does he's really good at memorizing stuff and i just i love i love watching it i don't i can't think of many things that make me happier but here's the thing. I would say this. It's like when that, I feel that way when I see him, but I I don't think you want to ever make the event, uh, kind of about your enjoyment of it or, or have the interest in the event sort of swing to you. And LeBron is very smart. He knows who he is. Yeah. He knows if he does this. This is going to happen. Like, you know, I like, I, it's, You know, and he will just—he would argue. I'm sure he's like, I'm just excited. Not—I'm not telling people to film me. I'm not signing a contract or that. But he has to know that, like, he is. You say like the most famous basketball player. I would say the most famous athlete in America. Um, And if he does this, you know, if he dunks in the layup line, of course, in a world where everyone has a phone, that's going to become a story. Now, for the other kids playing, I'm sure it's awesome. I bet they're like LeBron James. Is that this game? You know, it's like, you know, it's like I'm playing and it's there and, and, you know, several million people might catch a, a glimpse of me, you know, getting dunked on by his kid or whatever. It'd be kind of exciting. But there may be a point later in their life when they're like, kind of odd that that happened, that like <laughs> my experience as a youth basketball player ended up mostly being a platform for somebody who's already super famous and super successful. And and, and I don't know. I, I, my thing is, I just like, I, I, I I always wish athletes were more like Robert Parrish. (laughs) Like I just, I don't like, I don't like people displaying emotion in public. It seems performative to me. Right. I'm really happy that LeBron loves his kid and I hope his kid I hope they play together in the NBA. I think that would be amazing. That's something that could happen in baseball, it ever possible that it could happen in pro basketball. Um so I'm not criticizing him. I I'm not, you know, I just I I I, is... I, I like LeBron, but I wouldn't I wouldn't do that. I mean, it, it, there'd be a lot be a lot of things different about my life to be in that position, but <laughs> I, I don't know. It just it is a little odd to me.
0: Well, I just want you to know that if you did that it would also get a ton of YouTube views. I, I do think people would be blown away. Chuck Klosterman dunking in the layup line, <laughs> doing Taekwondo and the constructor, or whatever's going on. Um, I do See, the thing for me is, and I think LeBron is a good kind of case study for this topic, because I, I was reading G. Tolentino's new book, which I don't even know if it's out yet. Um, but the first chapter- Yeah, they, they
1: sent you, man. Oh. I, haven't, I haven't opened it yet, but they sent me a copy.
0: Yeah, I, yeah.
1: I, bet I. It's going
0: to be good. She's real talented. Yeah, she's great. She. Uh, I think if Grantland had been around a little longer, she would have been our next hire. We we loved her, but um, we. This first chapter is about basically how she grew up in the age of the internet, and then how the internet kind of changed over this decade. I don't want to step on it, and you know, I want people to read the book because it's good. But she has this whole thing in there about performative. The performative personality of somebody versus their actual personality and how the internet started to merge that, you know, because by the time we get to 2019, I was I was thinking about it last night. I was watching Raphael Devers is up, my favorite Red Sox player. Base is loaded. He's three for four. He's on this three-month tear, unlike anything I've I've seen with a young Red Sox player, really since Fred Lynn. And, And it's this really big moment. They're down a run, they have to beat Tampa. And the pitcher on, on the Rays is taking forever between each pitch, he's taking 40 seconds, 45 seconds. So it's just a lot of like nothing happening. And I was looking in the background behind Devers and all these people are standing watching the at bat, but they're all videotaping it with their iPhone, all of them. And it, it's like this, this whole, whole basically stands of people that are all standing up, taping the at bat that's also on television. And I just think that's what's happened with everything we do now, where it's they, they, they tape that at bat, they put it on Instagram. By the way, I've done this too. Um, and it's kind of like you're you're performing your own life, you're, you're, you're a version of yourself. The, the performance you're putting out there, whether it's on Instagram or Twitter you have a podcast you're writing, that's your performative profile, basically. So when LeBron's doing this sports parent thing, he's performing the role of a sports parent to some degree, I would think. I my question is, would he do that if he didn't know people were going to videotape it? I have no idea.
1: Well, I mean, a, even a, a more complicated question is does LeBron believe he can go out in public and not be videotaped? I would how say how often does it happen that he is in public and someone is not taking his picture?
0: Right. So when he's doing the dunk line lane thing, which by the way, I prove again, I'm, I'm pro LeBron James and all dunk lines. Um, but he knows how it's going to go real
1: high on that for a second. I was like, are they <laughs> yeah. playing on an eight and a half foot basket or something? I wonder if not playing in the playoffs is going to give LeBron just like two extra months of rest. He's going to come back and just rip the league apart. But anyways, back to your point.
0: Yeah, no, you're right. He hasn't, he played 55 games since that never happened in
1: like 12 years to him. Yeah. Yeah, Mid
0: June, 2018, all the way through today, which is now, you know, 15 months later, he's only played 55 games. So now I hear he might play
1: point guard. So I'm like, is he, is he, despite his age, is he the number one pick in a fantasy league? If he plays point, right. He might be,
0: I don't think he'll end up playing point. I think he's too old, but, um, I don't know. But back to the basic question of the sports parenting thing, what you said before about how the most exciting, probably the happiest thing you've seen in your life was when your son was succeeding at something in sports wise and watching him compete and just how thrilling that is. I think that's why I do think there, this really is genuine. I think he loves the fact that his son's good at basketball and he gets to be a fan. I think he can't contain himself.
1: I, I don't question his enthusiasm. There's another clip of him talking to his kid once. You've probably seen it. It's like the kid has missed a shot and lost the game. And he's like, actually, you made these three key plays. You hit the one guy on the outlet pass that got that layup. You shut the kid down in the corner. And he's like, he made that skip pass. It's like he, you know, he's, he. It, it, it's not as though, you know, I, I, I have a feeling that their relationship, you say like, he seems like his big brother. Well, I mean, What is the trajectory of parenting? Every generation of parents is closer to their child emotionally and also, like, interest-wise and all of those things. And the previous generation always says, like, you know, you're not supposed to be your kid's friend. You're supposed to be your kid's parent. And yet you can go back generations upon generations. Everyone is closer to their kid than they were to their dad. And their dad was to their grandpa. Like, it's just, that's how it works, you know?
0: Yeah. Well, the other thing I would say, we it, he's not that much older than his kid. So he really is, in some ways, he kind of is that in that big brother range. LeBron's 35 and his son is 14. So, you know, like I'm, my daughter's 14 and I'm 49. <laughs> so I feel like more like, more like the the old, way older person, but he really is more of a contemporary. They probably listen to the same music. My dad ah, was I like guess. that. My dad's only twenty one years older than I am, and we were always like really close, like that. So, um, but the, one thing I would say with LeBron, when he was at that basketball game, when my daughter was playing the next game, his son's game ended, and then we had warm ups for my daughter's game, and. You know, it was like 10 minutes and LeBron came back out because his team, I I guess they were talking to uh, the team or whatever, packing up, getting ready. And LeBron came out and watched the first quarter of my daughter's game. And there was no reason for it other than he just likes basketball. He was like in a gym and there was a basketball bouncing and he just kind of was like, I just love basketball. I'm going to watch this. He's watching an eighth grade basketball game, girls, that he does not know. And was just like, I'm just going to watch this. So I really just think he okay, genuinely like, loves like basketball. You were,
1: sitting, you, you were there sitting like with the guy from the Game of Thrones and like, <laughs> no, no, uh, like that's ba- Nelson was that's there. And like Ed Jordan <laughs> and you're sitting around and you're like, oh, look, there's LeBron, Paul so, Lin. Uh, Paul Lin was there from all Square. squares. In normal life, your very normal life where LeBron watches your daughter play basketball—it's it, a normal the, thing. We can all relate to it. Everyone listening to this podcast I, is like, "That's it is why so it's weird a great story." And-
0: Listen, this is yeah. the shit that happens when you're in LA. But I was so proud of my daughter's team. I thought they would just throw every ball out of bounds and just be completely nervous. Did she
1: step it up? Did she? Did she like, did. really we, like be like LeBron's here?
0: Yeah. No, she was like she came in after. and was like, you "See how well I played," because LeBron was watching. I was like, "All right, settle down." But uh, yeah, he does. Uh, I think his love for basketball has always been really genuine from day one. And I think that the Zion, what I've seen from him so far, I feel like is very similar in that respect where you have these guys who are phenomenal athletes, but who also seem like they just genuinely like the sport and they just like playing and being around a gym and just being in the mix. And I think those are the guys that end up usually making it like in, in the biggest possible way.
1: I saw footage of Zion uh, throwing a football around with Drew Breeze and he was throwing a pretty good spiral. I was looking at it on my phone, so I couldn't see that tight, but uh, you know, it, it looked okay.
0: Oh yeah, you His you hand act must like
1: just wrap, you know. <laughs>
0: you act like I didn't study that one. Yeah, I you, to me, like watching watching guys like Zion play another sport, I would just watch hours and hours of that, like Zion playing hockey, Zion playing baseball, <laughs> whatever. Uh, hold on, let's take another break. Hey, Shady Rays is not some big corporation that overcharges for shades. They're an independent sunglasses company that's out to do it differently. Give you more bang for your buck. The best warranty in all of eyewear—you won't find anything stronger. They include free replacements with just a small shipping and handling fee if shades are lost or broken for any reason. Doesn't matter what happens—drop mm. them in the ocean, lake, whatever—they'll replace them. This Smash them good on a scooter, yeah. That's yeah, what this sounds good for you, beer. Kyle. You break your sunglasses all the time. This is not something you can say for high-priced retailers. Plus, the quality of every pair of Shady Rays is guaranteed for life. They also believe in giving back for every order placed. Ten meals they provide to fight hunger in America. They provided over six million meals to date. Good for you, Shady Rays. They're giving you the best deal they have to offer. Use code BS at ShadyRays.com for 50% off two or more pairs, Kyle. Done. Jesus. This is a Black Friday level, buy one, get one free kind of deal. Two pairs for just $45 only at ShadyRays.com with code BS. Back to check. All right. So I have not seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood yet. I'm actually seeing it tonight. But I have been really, really into the Manson, Manson family revival of just like a new generation of people finding out about that story and how fucking crazy it was and- you know, I I think all of us in our general age range went through, you know, you would have your Watergate week. You would have your Manson Family week where you just like kind of deep dive different topics that had been around for a little while. And you would just kind of be like, wow, what's this? And either watch or read everything about it. Manson Family and the Helter Skelter book and the two-part movie with Steve back. Like I was in on all this stuff. Now we have this new book comes out that takes all this stuff that I had already thought about, digested and accepted in my head that Charles Manson was this crazy cult leader who had this band of women that he would have sex with and who were just completely loyal and faithful to him. And he decided he would start this helter-skelter war between whites and blacks. And then they would, they would recede into their ranch after it started, wait for everyone to kill each other and then emerge as the new leaders of this whole revolution. It was the single craziest uh, heat check theory I think anyone's ever had and awful for 19 different reasons. But um, this was actually what carried the day in court. Vincent Bugliosi, the prosecutor, convinced the jury that this was Manson's plan. And it seemed like the evidence was there that this actually really was the plan. And now 20 years later, this book comes out and this guy who's who spent way too much time and basically his life fell apart as he researched it and reported it and hit dead ends and all this stuff. And then ends up releasing the book and has now turned that history on its ear. I know you care about this. There's no way you don't. What are your thoughts?
1: Well, okay. First of all, I haven't read the book yet. Okay. I haven't read this new book. Okay. I'll say this. Okay. The idea that Manson, did not really mastermind like the lay Bianca murders and all that that has existed for a while. There there was a long sort of uh, held belief that maybe Tex Watson was doing a speed deal and it was that that it was a speed deal that went wrong or whatever. And the whole idea of this, this, of, of, you know, Manson listening to the white album thinking Helter Skelter was a description of this coming race war Um, that really was entered into the conversation by Bugliosi. that was sort of his thing. I mean, he wrote the book *Helter Skelter*. Um, so, is it possible that the uh, the that, that that these murders actually played out very differently than sort of our historical record, and that that uh, that you know uh, he they, they were closer to just like bad hippies than not really murderers? I don't know. Possibly. I will say this though: if the book, as you say, it indicates that Manson was actually a CIA operative. There is a lot of evidence to contradict that, <laughs> particularly his whole life growing up. I mean, there was a very good book about Manson that came out five years ago that does a really—I think it's just called Manson—that that really does a pretty granular, uh, you know, investigation of his early life, and there, there's absolutely no way. That the CIA would target this person to be their operative. I don't even know what the what to understand the, the the counterculture they were using him, and then in order to make sure the cover works, they put him in jail for the rest of his life. And he's like, "Sure, I'll do it." <laughs> yeah, obviously he was in a cult. Obviously, Squeaky From and Susan Atkins and all these people had they would carve exes in their heads with knives to show their support for him. He was obviously leading this cult. So I'll probably read this book, but it's going to have to be pretty persuasive to persuade.
0: Uh, The writer is Tom O'Neill. He gave an interview with the New York Times a couple of days ago, and he said, they asked him, why is the CAA referenced in the book title? And he said, I just, it may sound like a crazy conspiracy theory. That's how he starts. But I discovered a lot of evidence that right after Manson was released from prison in 67, he was spending a lot of time in the same medical clinic in San Francisco, where it's been documented that a CIA employee was recruiting subjects for studies of LSD and its ability to influence behavior. Coincidental or not, Manson suddenly transformed from a harmless little ex-con who nobody ever gave a second glance to an all-powerful guru surrounded by a harem of women who would do anything he asked including kill complete strangers. So the Times says, okay, Manson has a Manchurian candidate. That's pretty crazy. So this guy responds, well, it's a documented fact. The CIA had a program called chaos and the FBI had one called COINTELPRO. The object of both at the time, secret operations destabilize the left-wing movement, make hippies appear dangerous. And if this was a government operation, boy, did they succeed. Do you believe this now more <laughs> or less after I read that?
1: Well, I mean, okay, he's right about one thing. If this was the plan, it worked. Like, like it, it's the most. It's the one time the CIA did something that succeeded. In a, you know, like they could not kill Castro. They considered trying to poison his mustache. But if this is the one that worked, it worked very well. I, so the, I'm sure. I mean, everyone kind of knows now. The CIA was giving people LSD to see what would happen, and see if it could be used. Uh, to create, you know, super soldiers or the truth firm, all that stuff. But at the same time, there are many, many, many people who have taken LSD and had a big trip and then became themselves again. <laughs> like, right. there are many more of that than there are people who become, you know. Uh, uh, and it, it also, you know, in 1969 in L.A., it's not like I, LSD was very, very... Uh, Accessible, Like, you don't need the CIA to give it to you. Like, you could get it. Um, about the Tarantino movie, I'm not going to give anything away because you haven't seen it yet. But I will say this. It is, there's one, there's a lot of interesting things about it. I really liked it. But it has been a very long time since someone made any kind of art that was this anti-hippies. Because that has really fallen out of favor, especially among young people. I mean, you talk to young people about the late '60s; it's pretty clear who they think the heroes were. Yeah, and it is really surprising to see, like, a, a, like it's almost like a Mad Magazine from the '70s. Like, it's like they hate, like, they hate hippies so much in movies. Uh, it it was jarring, might be too strong of a word, but I was surprised by it. Like, I I I did not. Uh, I mean, granted, the hippies that they're using are the the worst hippies that ever lived. I mean, unless this guy, this book upends this, but I mean, you know, but they sort of, you know, like Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio are people who are like, we're of the 50s and this is how we think of hippies. And that's interesting. Yeah.
0: Um, I'm surprised. This is the 50th anniversary of just a lot of stuff. Summer of 69, I think was one of the most iconic summers that we've had. and. I'm surprised that Manson had a bigger shelf life with the whole nostalgia crowd this summer than Woodstock did. I really expected Woodstock, to the 50th anniversary and all that stuff, to be this. But it's interesting, Woodstock 99, which Quint Stillley we're doing a podcast about for Luminary right now, but it seems like Woodstock 99, just because it was closer in time, it was only 20 years ago, is more interesting to somebody who's under 30 than woodstock in 1969 and all these bands are and i wonder if that era well, is now kind of dying off
1: well part musically. of has to do also with, with charlie manson never disappeared from the culture mm. like he was a very prominent culture in the 80s when the, the relationship between heavy metal and satan was common you know Axel rose covers the charlie manson song on their punk covers record, it's like the secret track of "Look at Your Game, Girl." It's actually kind of a pretty good song. You don't to say that now because Charlie Manson wrote it. Um, there was a release of the music he had recorded in prison. I think I got this in like 1995 or 1996. Like, you know, he was on the cover of Spin magazine once. Like, like Manson has always been uh, like a, a figure in culture because. He seemed to sort of obviously embody a lot of the qualities that are incorrectly applied to countercultural activity. Yeah, like he actually sort of embodies, in a lot of ways, like the worst nightmare people would make up about rock music or whatever. Whereas Woodstock, you know, that music, uh, like you know, Crosby, Stills and Nash and stuff like that, like that was that was just kind of gone from like the middle 80s, well into the 90s. If you hear it a little bit more, I think it's kind of being reappreciated now, but there was like a lot of the artists who performed at the original Woodstock, that was, it was not like, nobody was listening to the Woodstock soundtrack in the early 90s. That was not like an artifact people cared about. Yeah.
0: I will, so my son started playing bass about two months ago and is really into it. And a lot of the songs that he likes are these classic rock songs. And I, there's just songs I haven't thought about and bands I haven't thought about in years. Cause why would you? But like, he's playing sunshine of your life by cream and that's and a
1: hard song to play. Jack Bruce was a real good bass player. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He can play that.
0: Well, he likes that. He likes, uh, there there's a few of them, but it's just funny that like when I was growing up, we had, so we're talking like 81 82 and I started getting to music 1981 1982 and we just didn't have a big library of music to kind of dive into right so classic rock had this incredible power and kind of it was 14 years of music you know like the Steve Miller greatest hits band it that that's this that album has just kind of disappeared at this point, but was one of the biggest albums of the eighties and an album that was on at every party I went to in high school. But now I look at the kids, if you're, if you're like 14 now, like my daughter, and you're really getting into music um, you have 50 plus years of music to draw from. It's kind of staggering. It like, I don't even know where you'd begin. So you have stuff like the whole classic rock genre is just kind of gone because you, like somebody like my son would have 30 plus years of hip hop to go through. He likes hip hop more than rock. So I, I, it was just kind of startling to me that we have enough music now to last, like for the rest of our lives basically. But when I was in like 1983, I didn't feel like we had enough. I was, I was always like excited to discover a new album.
1: Well, and also when you were, when you first get into music in 83, how old are you in 83? You're like 13 or
0: something. Yeah, I was like like 13, 14. Yeah.
1: You know, when I was getting into music in the 80s, bands like Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin and Rush, to me, seemed too old for me to be into.
2: Mm.
1: Like, I was into Motley Crue and Guns N' Roses and Poison and Tesla and all uh, the bands that were happening then. Because when you're young, it doesn't take a lot for something to seem too old. Now, Black Sabbath doesn't seem any older now than they did when I was Right, a kid in 1985, because time has changed with this. Like and like the the ability to sort of control what we listen to has increased so much, where it's like you don't have to worry about like whether or not you're being exposed to this on the radio or if you own records or whatever. Um,
0: well, and I also think and, you know, oh, the, go ahead.
1: The, Also, kids just listen now because of 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 downloading music. I mean, as everyone has said, this it's like people don't really get into to albums ever, ever. It's like, it's just individual songs. So like, it's your son probably knows maybe one song by Cream or two songs by Cream. It would have been very weird for somebody having that experience in 1990 to only know two Cream songs because that would mean they consciously did not play the rest of the best of Cream records they got.
0: Yeah, that's true. And I I think Queen is the best example of this. Like my, my kids absolutely love Queen and they love the movie, which is hilarious. I think they were probably the IQ level of, of the audience for that movie. But um, there's, you know, Queen, I would say had like five or six really, really iconic, memorable songs. And that's all you really need to do. Queen was around for, I don't know when the, I can't remember when they started, but they were around for a solid decade. I When I was in the moment. More than that. Yeah. yeah well, then Freddie did a couple solo albums, all that stuff. but in the moment, I never considered them even remotely on par with somebody like Elton john i I just didn't. I just felt like they were a, a level below two levels below Rolling Stones they Bohemian Rhapsody was obviously you know an all timer and but it it was just the body of work just wasn't there and really the live aid performance in a weird way it was kind of their apex mountain to borrow a rewatchables term where it was, they just blew everybody away on a day when like everybody was there. And now it's been funny to watch that evolve over the course of history where now my son assumes that they were probably the biggest band of that era. They they were bigger than the Rolling Stones, bigger. I, my son was like, dad, we were ju- we just watched and Rhapsody this weekend. He's like, dad, when they played Live Aid, was that like the biggest thing ever? And I was like, no, it was actually a much bigger deal that Led Zeppelin was there. The Queen was well, a fucking you know, what, afterthought. What
1: you're, what you're saying is kind of instructive. First of all, it's like Queen probably was the biggest band in the world in England because even like Robert Plant has a certain degree of like jealousy toward the amount of coverage that Queen would get because they were just seen as sort of more, I don't know, like a uh, like a like a more polished, less you know even like a more polished, or more like sort of the uh, I don't know, uh, well, wouldn't formal you say sort of thing? Wouldn't you, you say like, they were more liked, talked-
0: more liked than beloved, like just appreciated
1: in UK? Well, here's what I was okay. So you say when you describe Queen, you're like, so they had you say like they have four or five kind of iconic songs, and these are like you know how we understand Queen. What is interesting is that if you were a Queen fan in the '70s or the '80s. You would have never thought of them as a singles band. They were an album band. If you like, it would be um, pretty uncool for a Queen fan in 1978 or 79 to say Bohemian Rhapsody is his favorite Queen song. That would suggest he really wasn't a Queen fan. Or if you, or another one, Bites the Dust. That was that's that was actually probably had a bigger spike in the moment than any of the other songs. But that was like a that it was sort of seen as outside of, of. what was good about the band? But now you're probably right. Now, for most people, Queen is a collection of five or six songs, and what that does prove is that pop music is more important than rock music. Mm-hmm. It, it just is like like rock music is cooler, I obviously prefer it. But pop music is more important because it sort of transcends time. Like when you think of the biggest pop artists of the twentieth century, it's like Sinatra, Michael Jackson, you know uh, it's like these are you know, Elvis. Uh, these people who are famous to people who have no relationship to the music, you know, because pop music means it's popular music. It is popular. Right. That's what people want, is popular things. So Queen now, when you think of them historically, the average person, not somebody who thinks about rock music for a living, but like the average person, what they really think about is the pop extension of their rock catalog the songs they made that were played on pop radio. Um, I always, one of the interesting things about like the debate between like rockist people and poptimists or whatever is they use all these kind of complicated arguments to explain why pop is so important. All they really have to say is it affects the culture more. Like, it doesn't matter what the reason is. It's just something in pop music is important because it's important to people who barely care. So, I mean, like, like the way your son used Queen that's probably how Queen will be thought about going forward.
0: You know? Oh, I don't think it's even probably. But by, by the way, just for the record, I always thought Radio Gaga was a terrible song, even in the 80s. Uh, I'll never I'll never change my mind on that one. I'm not a fan. But
1: What do you think of One Vision? One <laughs> Vision's used really well in the movie Iron Eagle.
0: <laughs> that is true. Well... I just don't, I don't feel, here here would be my case for Queen was a level below. Like Freddie Mercury released two solo albums in I think like 85 and 87. And, you know, I'm sure it was a pretty big deal in the UK, but it just really wasn't a big deal in
2: America.
1: Well, it wasn't. That Mr. Bad Guy record actually is Okay, And then the second record he made with a popular opera singer from Italy. And people kind of critically like that record more. I don't like it as much. Um, But your argument is that I just wanted to make sure that I stayed this record good. So you're saying he made those solo records. They weren't huge.
0: Well, I I, I think he didn't stand out in the mid-80s like about 10 to 13 other people. Because that was also you know, you're talking about one of the most action-packed, loaded eras we've had of just stars, you know? Like you, like Springsteen and Madonna and Michael Jackson, like these are like all timers and they were all kind of peaking around the same time. Um, but I just felt like the Live Aid thing, the movie does, one of the only good things that movie did was do a nice job of pointing out that they kind of needed that performance. You know that especially they had broken up and they had lost momentum and
2: they weren't were the, kind of an afterthought. Really break.
1: You know the, re- the 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 movie has them not together for a period where they put a record out. Right. Like it's like right. the, the, the it's like it wasn't <laughs> it w- it wasn't like they came back together again for Live Aid. It was like it was just sort of the most for whatever for a lot of reasons like the most memorable performance. I mean like yeah. Zeppelin's performance at Live Aid was terrible. Black Sabbath wasn't that good. Um, you know, there was a, there was a handful of people who, who performed and it was like a weird deal because it was like this short 20 minute set in a, like the ultimate festival situation and they performed real well. See, my my memory of really Live Aid,
0: my memory of Live Aid was it being pretty disappointing and the sets feeling like they weren't long enough. And the Zeppelin thing was such like a, rah, rah. like every, the hype for that versus what actually was delivered. I remember like from... A musical standpoint, I like the Prince's Trust concerts more because they would put the CDs of those out, and those had really good bands that were kind of on their way up, and those were like good compilation albums. But I, I'm I'm... kind of a weird
1: thing, you know. I didn't, I didn't watch Live (laughs) Aid.
0: Oh, really? Well, you're a tiny bit younger than I am.
1: It was well, no, it wasn't age. It was on TV, but I was just like Motley Crue's not playing, like (laughs) I'm out, like like none of the bands I wanted to see were playing. So I was like, I was like, I'm not watching. I don't, I don't, I don't want to see, you know, I don't know, like, whoever, like I, I, I want, I don't want to see any Lennox or whatever. I want like, I want to see, you know, LA guns or whatever. So I didn't even watch it. Uh, I do think you know, it's amazing
0: uh, though, that if I had said to you two years ago, there's two movies coming out. One is about the life of Elton John. And one is basically the, the life of queen only the band is really heavily involved and they're not going to go into any of the really interesting Freddie Mercury stuff. It's just going to be a hagiography. Which one do you think will do better? I, I think Elton John would have been like a ten to one favorite.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, particularly if you include, include the word hagiography, I'd like probably going to be bad. But you know, people like hagiographies about people they like. That's kind of what you know. It's like they they uh, like this Mister Rogers movie is coming out. Like yeah. I have to say, this Tom Hanks movie, like. If it's like going to problematize Mr. Rogers, I don't want to fucking see it. Like, I don't, I have no interest in seeing a movie that complicates the identity of Mr. Rogers. Like, you know, I I mean, maybe it doesn't. I have no idea. I just seen the trailer. Um, I saw,
0: I I saw the doc that I really like. I really like the documentary and I just don't feel like I need to see the movie.
1: Well, the thing is when you watch the documentary though, it does raise this question. It talks very little about his childhood. And this childhood sounds real interesting, but like, it could be too interesting. Like, it could be too interesting in a way that's like, it's like, I don't want to be that you know? So I was like, I, I, I don't want to know.
0: Hold on. Let's take a quick break. Hey, you love to cook. You're not in the mood to do the dishes tonight. Well, watch your favorite show with your favorite people instead. Get it delivered with DoorDash. They connect you with your favorite restaurants in your city ordering is easy. Use the DoorDash app. Choose what you want to eat and a dasher will bring it to you anywhere you are. Not only is that burger place you love on DoorDash already, or in LA's case, John and Vinny's, the best. Over 310,000 other amazing restaurants are. DoorDash connects you with door-to-door delivery in over 3,300 cities, all 50 states and Canada. Order from your local go-to's, like John and Vinny's, or choose from your favorite chains like Chipotle, Wendy's, Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A. Wendy's. And the cheesecake factor. Don't worry about dinner. Let dinner come to you with DoorDash right now. My listeners can get five dollars off their first order of fifteen dollars or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter promo code Bill. Five dollars off your first order. Download the DoorDash app from the App Store and enter promo code Bill. Do it now. Back to Chuck.
1: I want to talk to you about something else that uh, that it, it happened on this book tour. And since I'm kind of doing this to promote the release of Raised in Captivity. Yeah, I thought uh, I would mention this. Okay, so I'm doing a, an event in Boston, um, and uh, like I'm, like Tom Prada Prada is interviewing me on stage. so cool of him to do that. I'm actually doing one with David Shields in Seattle. That's kind of exciting. I'm oh, coming up next week. Black but Anyways, yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, any have you seen his Marshawn Lynch film? It's pretty cool. No, um, but regardless, uh, so uh, the people are coming up asking lots of questions, and this guy asked me, <laughs> "What do you think?" about the people who are going to storm Area 51. Mm. And I was like, what? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, these people have gotten together on the Internet. They've kind of made this decision that, uh, that they're going to storm Area 51, you know, in Roswell, New Mexico. And I was like, I, I don't know much. I don't know anything about this. I haven't heard about it. The guy goes back to his chair, and I'm kind of just making jokes about it. And I'm like, you know, I wonder when is this going to happen? And then a different person in the audience yells out, September 20th. <laughs> now, there's 100 people at this. Yeah. So now at least 150th of this audience knows about this. Uh, you know, And, and September 20th is interesting. It's my anniversary. But it's also going to be the day when all these people apparently are going to get together outside of maybe Las Vegas or something, supposedly go to Area 51, and just kind of, they say, like, they can't stop all of us. We're just going to come in mass and, like, get inside there and see what they've been hiding. And the military now has basically said, well, if you attempt this, which I'm sure you're not, but if you do, we are going to shoot people. Like, we're going to shoot people who try this. (laughs) Um, Now, maybe they're just trying to be threatening or whatever, but I I mean, it's a military base. Um, I'm just curious, what do you think about the idea of a whole bunch of people trying to get into Area 51?
0: Well, isn't as we head to the end of this decade, isn't it the logical conclusion to a really bizarre decade of people mobilizing with weird causes on the internet and then actually following through with weird proclamations? Like that, this is Pizza Gate, but like a more relatable Pizza Gate, where we've all had we all have thought about Area 51 and had takes on it and wondered about it. So now you have all these people who have just said, we're fucking going there. And it might actually happen. Like my kids asked me about this a couple of days ago. They were like, what's it's going It's a much
1: bigger deal. I yeah. can not believe that two people, at least, because I don't know how many people at this reading stayed quiet after I sort of acted like, what in the hell is going on? Why, do, why are all the people here knowing that? Um, it, it is a, you know, it's a, for the longest time, you know, there was, you know, you'd hear about an Air Force guy or something, saw something he couldn't explain. You know, it's like that way you hear this a lot. But prior to the early 90s, the assumption was always, well, it's probably Russian stuff, right? Like it's probably, it's probably, you know, Russian military personnel. Like that's probably what we're seeing. And it's kind of scary because who do know what they have. Well, then Russia falls, Soviet Union falls. We now know all about their technology. Yeah. As it turns out, for the most part, they were ahead of us on some stuff, but mostly behind us and definitely like, didn't have anti-gravitational drive or anything like that. So now, like, even in the New York Times, you will see a story about, like, what information does the government have about extraterrestrial beings visiting Earth or whatever? Let's say you were president, OK? You're President Bill Simmons. Yeah. And, and you are briefed. That it was like, you know, in Area 51, there is a crashed spacecraft, and we did find the corpse of an alien, and we did dissect him, and we found all these things. But the information you found is very troubling. Like, it is something that would definitely cause people to uh, be very alarmed. Would you say continue suppressing it, or would you feel as though, well, this does seem like something of the national interest. It must be told.
0: So you've had how many presidents since this since this allegedly happened?
1: Okay, was, uh, let's see. Well, what, what, at one, least like eight, nine, ten. Two, right. Two, three, four, five, six, seven,
0: eight, nine, nine or
1: ten. Yeah, I think. I think if I'm right. So okay. if your
0: theory is correct, which I, I enjoy the theory and I, I'm debating about whether I want to support it, I'm very close. All of those presidents would have come to the same conclusion that people can never know about this because they'll be really disturbed. Now, we have a president in in office now who doesn't care about stuff like that and probably wouldn't mind people being disturbed about something like this and would bring it up when he kind of needs something to deflect everybody from something else. He doesn't want people talking about for two days. So I could see him if it was that disturbing. I think he's the one who would, who would kind of tell us about it, which makes me think it's all smoke and mirrors and nothing actually happened. So,
1: well, I mean, so much time has passed though. It may now just be like when the president asks what's going on in area 51 and they go like, Oh, nothing.
2: You know nothing. So they, they,
1: nothing
0: yeah, there. they're they're lacking about it. What? I don't know what Area 51 is.
1: I, because it's it's a kind of a curious thing. It's like if you were president, like would you be interested in saying getting more into oh. re-investigating the JFK assassination oh, or yeah. Area 51 or any of these things? That would Did, be a, that would be one of your your platforms.
0: This is one of the many reasons I can't be president because I would take office. And I would immediately try to find out the answers to eight things that have always bothered me. I'd be like, "Hey, just, just, can you just show me all the JFK stuff? Can you show me the stuff nobody's seen, the stuff that can't be released until 2025? Just can I have that at my desk by uh, by Monday? And uh, just the actual video of uh, of the first five moon missions? I just want to look at it. Just, just give me give me a gander. <laughs> Someone check it out. Want to see the unedited, not the director's cut." I'd want to see all that stuff, but that's why I can't be president. The, re- the real president well, yeah. should be have should be trying to you know go through his agenda. Um, we have the ability now to videotape everything immediately, so the whole thing with UFOs was it was always somebody grabbed their camera at the last second and there was something up there and they were able to get like a terrible video camera footage of it, but now it's two thousand. 19, we live in a world where Raphael Devers is up at bat, base is loaded, and every person in the ballpark is videotaping it. Wouldn't you think like the number of available cameras, the number of times people are just shooting things with their camera, which I would say has increased by what? A billion times what it was 25 years ago? <laughs>
1: wouldn't, Probably.
0: wouldn't the number of, of accidental UFO sightings have also increased proportionally? wouldn't we be getting one like well, every six weeks?
1: They actually have apparently like a particularly within, in, in Russia and in, in Europe, it's much more common to have those dashboard cameras. Yeah. Like a lot of people have dashboard cameras and that seems to be where a lot of this is coming from there. There. I I mean, I think there has been an uptick in this. Uh, I don't know if it, it is commensurate with the number of people who are now kind of randomly shooting things with their camera, but, um, I, I, in general, there does seem to be uh, a more of a willingness for kind of credible military and political leaders to want to have this conversation, you know. And we, because they've always always sort of worked from this interesting premise, you know. Mathematically, it's almost a guarantee that life exists in the universe outside of us. Right? I mean, I mean like like the math demands that that be the case. Uh, if it does, if there aren't, that's the best argument for God possible, that, that, that this would somehow only have happened once in this one place. However, while conceding that the math says there must be aliens, the idea is like, well, but, you know, we'll never reach them, they'll never reach us, space is infinite, so it's like who knows what the distance is. It's kind of interesting to have both of those thoughts at the same time. I mean, if you accept that within... Infinity. Everything that can happen will happen. There's actually a lot of opportunity for life to exist in space. So, why why is it so unthinkable that that there would be cultures who could travel at a much higher rate of speed than we can? Like our understanding of science is could be very primitive to some other world. I mean, these are all obvious thoughts that people have said a million times, but. I, I I would be surprised if in my lifetime contact is made with aliens, but I think there are other things that would surprise me more. Yeah.
0: I just looked over at nephew Kyle and if there was a giant bowl right now that he could just, just smoke from <laughs> that monologue you just had, he was like, it was the only thing he was missing. He was like, yeah, he was really into it. Um, I do think it's interesting how many people care about aliens versus how it's dispersed in popular culture because, you know, think about, like, there's that famous Will Smith story where he wanted to be the biggest star in the world and he looked at the box office and realized, like, five of the top nine movies were alien movies and was like, I just, I need to start making alien movies. And just that became a career directive. And it is true. If you look at the biggest movies of all time, it's basically aliens and superheroes. So people do care about this stuff and we do have the technology um, that would be able to capture any weird event, but they always seem to be happening in Russia and these countries that aren't here. The Area 51 thing—it seems like people are now trying to force this to happen. They're for—they're forcing an alien encounter. They—they they want to almost <laughs> manufacture it themselves because they've been dissatisfied that they haven't had that they haven't been able to have it. So I don't know. That would be my theory. Well,
1: it—it it, it is a. It is an odd thing, you know. When I was in college, uh, I I I, I, had, I took a class on UFOs. We had a UFO class by a guy named John Seltzer, who's mm. in the Indian Studies program. I guess it would be Native American Studies program now. He he was a big guy involved with civil rights, like he made Evers. He did all these things. Uh, he was very very political, but he also was very insistent that he had been contacted by aliens early in his life. And we had this, so he's, it was like a two-credit class, weirdly, in the Indian Studies program about UFOs. But, uh, you know, so we talked about all the different kind of encounters. He always, I'll, I'll never forget this. Like, I forget so much stuff I learned in college, but I remember this. Was like, he was describing, like, uh, like w- w- things that were different about him after the UFO contact. Because mm. his argument was that UFOs contact the most open-minded people. That that's that they're that they that they're very that they're good. <laughs> they're not here to hurt us. They're slowly contacting the most open-minded people, you know, to to, to sort of kind of, come, come, out of our, come out of our society. So <laughs> he had three things that happened immediately after he was contacted by these aliens. <laughs> one was that he no longer had anxiety. He was completely at ease all the time. Wow! All anxiety he had ever had was gone. The second one was that he had never uh, been able to grow a beard, but now he had to shave every day. He could grow a beard in a week if, if he tried. He was like, he'd never been able to grow a beard. Now after the encounter, he could grow beard. But the third one was always the strangest one. Prior to contact, he said he hated peas, but now was ravenous for them that any opportunity he had to eat peas, he would, although growing up, he despised them. Wow. These are the, these are the three, these are the three things that happen. Apparently if you get abducted by a UFO.
0: (laughs) So it's almost like when somebody, when your wife is pregnant and they have like a craving for boneless chicken wings or something. Now, he has a craving now, for like, the rest of his life, life. <laughs> for peas. Yeah, but, you
1: know, but then, you know, peas come from pods, right? So we often talk about UFOs being pod people, correct? So maybe the UFO sees the peas on Earth as like the closest <laughs> extension of who they are, and therefore they have some kind of, kind of metaphysical connection with peas because they come from <laughs> pods. And therefore, if you meet these aliens and you exchange ideas and you exchange emotions, you will then want to consume, you know, the alien life force. Which is the common
0: P? <laughs> Amazing. Let's take one more break. <laughs> one more break to talk about Mizzen and Maine. Have you ever worn a dress shirt that subconsciously reminded you of a straitjacket? Jesus, <laughs> Fine. I hate that. The worst. Finally, someone has made dress shirts better, and that someone is Mizen and Maine. Thank God. I hate like pretty much every dress shirt I have. They make them for men. And they're actually a little more comfortable. They're a lot more comfortable. Made with performance fabrics that stretch and move with you all day. It's summer right now, the sun's beating down on you in a normal cotton dress shirt. You're like a sponge, you're sweaty. The shirt soaks it right up. Not so with Mizzen and Maine. Their performance fabrics dry quickly by wicking moisture away. So you never have to worry about looking like a mess. Their shirts are also wrinkle resistant, making them perfect for travel. Pull them out of your bag, don't worry about ironing. Shirts are easy, they work, they're comfortable. Wash them at home without paying the dry cleaner. Head over to Mizzen and Main's website at dot .comfortable.af. Use code BS10 at checkout, and you receive $10 off your first order. Mizzen and maine it's never felt better to look your best. All right, last topic, then we're going to go. The, I texted you a bunch of possible topics for us to talk about, and one is why can't we find a presidential candidate that everybody – Gets excited about it, and is that even is that even possible anymore in 2019? And if it was possible, what would that candidate look like?
1: Oh, I misunderstood. I thought you were saying like I'm looking at these candidates and like they all seem bad because I will. I gotta say I've been pleasantly surprised by the field of candidates. I mean, like I don't know. It's been a long time since I have liked a candidate as much as I like Pete Buttigieg. I just I think he's a I. I, I i think he's a real thoughtful person and uh you know and and like even in the debate last night i mean there's another one now tonight but the one from tuesday when like, warren sanders were talking about the idea of trade and how it's like if you give businesses the opportunity to to build a factory in vietnam to save five cents they're going to do it every time so we almost have to create legislation to stop doing that the other candidates were sort of like, well, that's antithetical to what trade is. It's like you've got to be able to trade with our allies. I thought it was. I, I, I've been, for the most part, maybe I don't know. I just I, I have kind of found a lot of these uh, these individuals more competent than I would have guessed. Yeah.
0: You know? So you're comparing them to years past, like even four well, years think, ago. You, you feel like competence inside?
1: I'd watched all the Republican debates when Trump was running, and, and these debates are so different. I mean, like, they're, they're, they're the people are so different, you know? I mean, you still get some stupid stuff. You get, like, oh, people arguing over what's really patriotic. Like, is, is this patriotic or is this action patriotic? It's like the difference between patriotism and nationalism is the magic. Being patriotic is stupid okay there's no reason to love a place more because you happen to have been born there that's just an irrational sort of reaction so don't try to build it into your policy about like what you know what's the most patriotic thing to like are human rights patriotic is the economy patriotic it's like that's dumb you still get some of that sometimes um but in general i find the the, the sort of the the discourse pretty good like uh like pretty interesting you know Wow.
0: Wait, well, so going back to my, the, the question, do you think we'll ever have a candidate again that people remember, you know, fondly years later for whatever reason? It could be Republican or Democrat. Cause I think, you know, I think Reagan is somebody that, whether you want to pick apart how his eight years went and especially the last couple, I think was somebody that most people liked and just for like I like that well, guy? And is that even possible to have anymore?
1: I mean, it, it's kind of two questions. Is it possible to have a candidate that people in the you know, in retrospect will look back at fondly? Absolutely. I mean, look at the way people now perceive George W. Bush. You know, that you can go back and read Village Voice from like two thousand and three or two thousand and six, and the language they use to describe Bush is identical to the language now used to describe Trump. Yeah. You could search and replace Bush and Trump, you would not know it. Okay. There was a cover of the Village Voice where Bush was a vampire biting the neck of the Statue of Liberty. That was the <laughs> cover of the Village Voice. But now it's like, he's a painter and he's not so bad at it. And he gives, you know, Obama's wife a Mentos at a state funeral. And boy, he sure seemed kind of reasonable and he could speak Spanish. And like, that has already happened, I think. For the most part, Bill Clinton being the odd example because of how culture has changed in terms of like sexual politics, for the most part, you know, anyone who wins the presidency as time passes tends to kind of be beloved. I mean, Jimmy Carter was one of the worst presidents of the 20th century in terms of how much success he had as a president, yeah. but he's had a great post-presidential career, and people love him now. Now, if you're asking, could there be a candidate in the present tense who is beloved as he or she runs? No way. I mean, partially because the system is set up against that. Like it would just. How could there be someone like like uh, you know even like Obama was a pretty popular president. I think his reputation is is about as good as one could hope, having been you know away from that job for less than ten years or whatever. But he was in no way a beloved candidate. I mean, there was, you know, he was criticized in the same degree anybody else is. So, like, I'm not sure. You look at somebody like, okay, Marianne Williamson,
2: okay,
1: she, it, it, after the debate last night, I which I had to kind of see on tape because I missed when it was live, but I was looking at Twitter, and judging from my Twitter feed, she won the debate, okay? It's like, it's like if you use my Twitter feed as an example of the world, it's like Elizabeth Warren's already president, and now Marianne Williamson is vice president or whatever, you know. Hmm. So she like she seems there's like a cult of personality around her, that that it, it's it's that, that, that people are just sort of charmed by her, and they're like, do I like her ironically or do I like her seriously? Um, <laughs> she of course is not a serious candidate, but. I think that she is pretty close to being a widely liked candidate.
0: Well, it's funny how, as the years pass, when somebody's not in the spotlight position that they are in, then we were like, the George W. Bush thing is a great example. This happens with NBA players, right? This happens with this could happen with Chris Weber. This could happen. It's happened with Vince Carter. This could happen with. We saw Kobe Bryant the last few years and how people just choose to remember either what's happened lately or how, what their feelings were near the end of the career, and they'll throw away all the other stuff. And then this alternate universe happens about how this player, how their career went versus what actually happened in the career.
1: First of all, I commend you for always being able to bring it back. I had to listen. I know who my base is Chuck. It's sort of like, I know who my base I can't is. Believe... Well, I know, but it's, it's, it's a really interesting thing. It's like your ability to see the world through the lens of basketball completely yeah. validates the success of your basketball book. <laughs> that is how you understand life. Like I would think that the reason that you only had two kids instead of three, I would have thought it was your choice because you're like, we have three, we can only play zone. <laughs> like I want to
0: no, play now. Like, all right, now you're getting carried away. No, I, <laughs> I I think basketball is the only sport where and especially now just because everything I, can be described by the... <laughs> Well maybe. Maybe that's a maybe that's title of a book. No, I think the personalities are so powerful that sometimes the career takes a different form. I don't know if this happens with other like in baseball, you're just trapped by the stats, right? Wh- whatever well, whatever and, and ends up being your football. legacy is is the stats, not whatever, however everybody feel, felt then versus now. And then football, you know, the careers are so short. And, you know, Joe Montana was great. I don't feel any differently about that 30 years later, 25 years later than I did in the moment. But in, in basketball, for some reason, it can really shift. And the one person it hasn't shifted for, for whatever reason, is Carmelo Anthony. There's like this real animosity well, I mean, to him that I think I find very bizarre.
1: It is, but I mean, he's still going to try to play this year, right? Still I hope play. not. I, mean, I,
0: I think th- it's over. But.
1: Well, you, you don't think, I mean, I, I don't, I've been watching him work out. He was pretty good working out in the empty gym. But mm-hmm. uh, uh, I would think somebody would say, well, you know, it, it, the thing that, uh, who was it? I think it was Chauncey Billups. It was Chauncey Billups. He said something oddly candid about Carmelo Anthony, which is that like, he was just, he was too interested in getting 30 points. Yeah. And it's like, it's something everybody knows, but it was real surprising to hear teammates say that. Right. Because I I do feel like in a lot of ways, like they feel like the, like, you know, the, the, like the lock block is, is shut on my teammates. Like, I'm never going to say these things until like we're really old people. So that was surprising. I mean, but now, so let's say it is ten years from now, okay? So Carmelo's been out of the league for eleven years or whatever. Yeah. I can certainly see whatever version of us who's currently in their twenties or whatever, you know, they're running their I don't know if podcasts will exist or whatever it will be. And they'll say, like, do you remember how everybody was just like, Carmelo's terrible? And then let's call up his numbers. Oh my God, look at this! Oh, he went all these. You know, I could see that changing, especially oh, since I think it'll happen sooner than ten
0: years. In... No. I think it'll be. I think it'll well, be when he, he retires. Down. I think there'll be an immediate shift, and people will be like, "Hey, you know what? Carmelo Anthony actually was really great," and it'll totally shift for him. But for some reason, because he's still trying to play, there's. I'm just amazed by how much shit he takes, because. You know, they he came within two wins of making the finals in oh nine and the two thousand thirteen Knicks were really good. I think he was at the number two MVP pick one year. It wasn't like people make it seem now like he was a
1: well, but the, you know, the overrated. analytics guys the analytics guys hate him and that's a bad group to have turn on you because you can't defend the guy. Like if the analytics people say like Carmelo is actually, you know, a fraction of as good as Tobias Harris or whatever the case may be, you know, um any argument you use to sort of defend that they'll just say like, well, you're not a rational person Then you don't, you don't care about evidence. Just, you just, all yeah, but, you care about but is grids." What's but weird you know, about you, that you you is he, he has some
0: good analytic years though. That's the thing. It's, that's why I feel like it's irrational. You did make me think of something as you were talking about that. If, if we had had analytics, like we do with sports for politicians and people were being like, look, Jimmy Carter's war was way higher than people realized in 78. He had incredible gear. He did this, this, that, and the other thing. Because it's, you know, the perception of how somebody did as a president. Carter was, I thought, when I was really into this stuff, when I was a political science major in college, all that stuff. Carter was, I thought, the most riveting president to study after the fact. Because he was the one guy that went into that presidency with real ideals and tried to accomplish them and just got demolished. And he, it's a really good case study for everybody that came before and after. But I'm sure there's some, some version of politics, advanced metrics that could be, that could make a case that he was a better president than we thought.
1: Well, you know, actually, I would say that there probably would be a version of that, and it would be bad. Because the thing is, <laughs> analytics, only, analytics only seem to work in sports they don't even work that well in politics in terms of polling. They end up giving us this, they end up giving us like a specific sense of something that we already sort of agreed on our own. Like sports has the most stats. Yeah. But anytime you see these things, like let's try to do, let's try to use analytics for the Oscars. Or like, let's try to use analytics to like understand like, Oh, I don't know what's the, uh, like what's the best way to do anything. That is not that measurable. That we don't have numbers. I mean, yeah, you know. So, like, okay. So Carter one time went on television, and it was kind of during the like the oil crisis, and he like looked into the camera and he was like, "Everyone should wear a sweater. Turn your thermostat down and wear a sweater." Right. Okay. So now that is an attempt to sort of humanize a real issue, but he did it did not come across well. You know, so it's like, how do you how do you somehow quantify the fact that when Nixon talks about his dog, people love it? And when Carter talks about his sweater, people think it's crazy. Or like when Carter says, I was on a boat and I got attacked by a giant swimming rabbit. okay, like I bet that did happen to him. Why would he make that up? But people are like, the president was attacked by a giant swimming rabbit. What's that like? He's not very presidential or whatever. Like, you know, it's I don't think there's a way to measure the things that we actually use to understand these people. Like there's no analytics that would describe why Williamson did well on the debate last night.
2: It would
0: be I funny. Mean, it, if, if it's, there's- you know how like it, with uh, like basketball or baseball, they're able to put whatever was going on in the era and then adjust the stats that way. So like in basketball, they have like the pace of possession and baseball mm-hmm, they can mm-hmm. do it. It'd be funny if you could do that with politics and be like, well, actually Carter. If you look at the late seventies, like, yeah, the, the oil and Iran and you had, you had a ton of cocaine, like he had a lot of obstacles. So we got to factor that into his pace of possession <laughs> presidency <laughs> versus Reagan comes in the eighties. Everybody's happier. Um, yeah, I, I, uh, he, the, the Malay speech was the other thing that killed him. I mean, that would, that was the death. No, when to have a president just stare in your TV and just be like, you guys suck. We got to do better. People are like, No, no, this can't no, you need to go.
1: Yeah, yeah, like, People, you cannot do that. You cannot tell you cannot be honest with people if the honesty means that like there's something sort of wrong with you inherently. Or right. Whatever, you know? I mean the hostage the hostage situation was bad because it made him seem real powerless. And then the attempt to rescue them failed. So then it was like you better not try again. Then the fact that they released the hostages on the day Reagan is being inaugurated, which was the same day as the Eagles and the, the Raiders played in the Super Bowl. So there was all this stuff going on. And it like the fact that, that it, it happened at the same time, it just it, it almost made it seem like Iran was basically saying like we waited for him. Well, they did like, we waited for him to be president to release them just so, you know, it, it right. made him seem like an impotent figure. Uh, even though he really did all the work to get them released. I mean, Tough Carter one. was working like 20 hours a day up until their release. You know? Yeah.
0: Tough one. Jimmy Carter, poor guy. Um, all right. So what, what are your book tour stops?
1: On August 6th, next Tuesday, I'm in Portland. Then on the eighth, um, I'm in Seattle And then the following Monday, which I think is the 12th, I'm outside, I'm in like Parma, Ohio, which is Cleveland, Ohio. Those are the last three ones.
0: When you were on the last time, you hadn't seen Chernobyl yet?
1: I have seen it now.
0: And it was everything I told you it was going to be, wasn't it?
1: It was very good. I mean, I'll say this. I've never watched a dramatic series, like a non-documentary. Where I learned so much stuff. Like mm. as it turns out, I did not know how a nuclear reactor worked. Right. <laughs> I had no idea whatsoever. Um, it, it is. It, I will say to somebody who's listening to this, and they're like, "Oh man, I've got the time for that." If you watch the first episode and the last episode, you get almost everything. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's helpful to watch the whole thing, but. There's like a lot of exposition, particularly in the last episode in the courtroom, that really explains a lot. I mean you'll you'll miss like the personal relationships or whatever, but uh, um but it was very good, you know. Nefika did Nefikau, of- did you watch
0: it? I watched the first episode. And that was it. that Nephi was it. Kyle was I'm not one out. and done. I'm not out, but I just watched and the first episode. And that's tough. It's tough to regain the momentum.
1: I felt one criticism of it that I thought was real interesting. Somebody said that because they used all British actors, yeah, um, it really sort of skewed the way it was told because they say that depressed British people are very different than depressed Russian people. And that the way Russian <laughs> wow. people express, express depression is very different than the way British do, British people do. Um, I, I, that's kind of, you know, that's kind of an interesting I idea. I never know do what
0: accent somebody should have in a show like that. I don't know what is it's odd. What are they it's gonna do a like, like a is. Russian accent? British. Yeah. British seems like, like neutral. You know,
1: why, why in fantasy? Like why is why why do most fantasies involve people speaking vaguely British? I mean, granted they had kings and catapults and stuff, but Game of Thrones is not in England. But everyone's kind it's of a great British.
0: Point. I love Chernobyl. Um the the last thing, and then we'll go. Is just, are you watching Loudest Voice or no?
1: What is
0: it? Oh, it's it's, it's it would be the most close to mini show of the year if Chernobyl hadn't come out. It's Russell Crowe playing Roger Ailes.
1: Oh yeah, you know I not I I forgot I didn't know what it was titled. I saw the trailer for it. I'll probably watch that. Oh, I'll I would probably watch that. I no. would say
0: it's in your wheelhouse way more than you realize it is because it's really a history of, of, uh, Fox news and that, how they put that channel together and the mindset behind it and how that channel evolved through the era, but also oh, like sure, yeah. a ton of me too stuff going on. And it's Cause I, I've way better than, than I thought.
1: Years, I've been watching this show years and years. Yeah. Uh, and I have really enjoyed that. Like it's kind of melodramatic. Some of the storylines are crazy, but like, for people who are kind of interested in like a dystopia that's around the corner, it's very well done in that regard. There's a lot of action in terms of news, you know. And
0: we both watched yeah. that documentary that should have been one part, and it ended up being two. I love you now, die. Which I th- I yeah. found I found has been a really interesting reflection on somebody's relationship. What they whether they think the the girl was guilty or not. Or what should have happened to her? It's it's it can end up turning into like a, an argument between a couple because some people, some people think, yeah, put her in jail. Other people think, actually, she sh- she shouldn't have been convicted. And then there's the third party, which is the correct answer, which is my answer, which is guilty by insanity. I don't know what happened to guilty by insanity, but she seemed like that should have been the verdict.
1: Well, okay, for people who don't know what we're talking about, there's it's a documentary about a case that I think happened pretty recently in 2015 yeah. where a girl had a relationship with a guy. I mean, I guess they were boyfriend and girlfriend. They'd only seen each other Online. five times yeah. in two years, but they texted constantly. And then he was suicidal, and she supposedly convinced him to commit suicide. The, you know, it, it was the two-part documentary, and it's like you watch the first part, and it's like she's obviously guilty. And then you watch the second part, it's just like, Oh, maybe she's innocent. It was like, it, it was it really wasn't very instructive about what really happened. Also, she doesn't talk in this documentary. Right. And I guess it's, you know, I can understand why. And like, this is probably kind of an arrogant thing to say, but I feel like if I talked to her for 20 minutes, I'd know if she was guilty or not. <laughs> right. like, I, just, I, I think it, it would be real telling to me what, how, what she's like as a person, you know? Yeah. Um, the guilty well, she, by insanity is odd because what you're kind of arguing in a way is that being in high school makes you insane. That, that a, that a, a high school kid is the, the a normal high school kid is kind of insane by adult standards. And that might be true. I don't know. You know,
0: oh, I thought, uh, I thought her, her behavior you know, was way, was way past the normal level of behavior. And they had a lot of stuff in there that, you know, she's pretty off the rails and their relationship was off the rails. And, and the, the poor Kato ended up killing himself. He, he was, he had a lot of stuff going on and it was just like a toxic match. And
1: well, I, I don't know. Was, like I, I have found that as I talked, when I talk to people about it, I am surprised by how many women I've talked to who felt a lot of empathy for her and said like, that that's not so far removed from, the experience of being like a, a a female in high school or whatever, the the ways that that you know the importance of your friendships and and also like uh, the idea of seeing things on television and sort of adopting it as your own narrative. Like I I I was I didn't feel that way in high school, but I, I I've I've been surprised by how many people I've talked to have expressed that. Well, that, she that, she, that she was
0: basically it, convinced she was one of the characters from Glee. That's that to me. That's like the insanity defense. It's we re- have re- been really helped with that information. Well,
1: but no, I don't think she was convinced she was a character from Glee. I think she longed to have the life that she saw on a television show. All right. Well, and same thing. Yes. That. The, yeah. That when it's when a person is an adult, that's weird. When they're fourteen, I don't know. I don't know what just. Like I, you have a better sense that you have a daughter, maybe like, you know, but, did your daughter watch it? That would no. be interesting. I, uh,
0: I can what? have her, I, I wish it was an hour shorter, but, um, yeah, i actually, that's not a bad idea. It's pretty, it's, it's disturbing, but not like super disturbing. I really want Nefie Kyle to watch it. I'm interested. In... Oh, I saw it. You I saw had it? I had a long talk with the girlfriend about it. Truly. Oh, did you dis- <laughs> did you disagree on whether she was guilty or not? Yeah, yeah. We kinda of met in the middle. But Yeah, uh, see, this is the thing about this documentary is I don't I haven't heard of a couple yet who agree completely on the on what they think the verdict should have been. It's
1: a good like test. Well because test. you know what the thing is, it is a new problem. Yeah. Like that is not like, it's not as though there's some version of that that happened. We were in high school. There is none. There is no version prior to this period of time where people who have only seen each other five times in two years could have that intimate of a relationship. Right. If they wrote a letter every day. Yeah. People used to do when their boyfriend or was in the army or whatever. It's not like continual texting. It's just not like that, you know? And, uh I, I I I kinda I'm pretty mixed about it. Like in some ways I feel that just having this happen to her is almost enough of a penalty. I, that, mean, I mean she was extent, in
0: jail for what, like a year and a half as this thing was going along and it seemed like and then mm-hmm. they let her out, they did the time serve thing, and then the family rightfully was like, What the fuck? And then she ended up going back in. But
1: Yeah, I mean if she had she had no like she had no teenage experience really. I mean, you know, it's like her, her current, the memory of her adolescence is going to be completely negative. I guess that almost seems like enough to me, but
0: you know. yeah. Well, mm-hmm. wasn't a feel good documentary. <laughs> um, but what is feel good is Chuck coastman's book tour. It's still going right now. <laughs> Raised in captivity. Um, Chuck, a pleasure. As always look forward to doing this again soon. Thank you very much. Thanks to Chuck. Thanks to ZipRecruiter. Don't forget to go to ziprecruiter.com slash BS. Thanks to Voodoo, a leading streaming app with a library of over 150,000 titles available to rent or buy, like the critically acclaimed smash hit Avengers Endgame, and over 10,000 titles you can watch for free on their ad-supported, on-demand service, blockbusters, indie films, whatever you want. No subscriptions or contracts. Watch the Departed right now for free in August as well as The Karate Kid, Clerks, Jerry Maguire, Fatal Attraction. Wow. Head to voodoo.com slash Bill Simmons to sign up and start watching today. V-U-D-U dot com slash Bill Simmons. That's the last podcast on this feed for this week. Rewatchables with the Town coming on Friday on the Rewatchables feed. And uh, shout out to Neffy Kyle. Until the next one.